I grew up in the desert. There were palm trees and succulents and shrubs and lots of lizards scuttling around that my cousins liked to catch. It was hot and dry. The sun is fierce and there's beautiful sunsets. The winter can be green if we get rain, but summer is brown, brown, brown. I grew up in the desert of urban, urban Southern California. That's the twist. There's buildings everywhere. It's highly populated. There's cities and suburbs just running together right and left. Before you drive anywhere, you have to look up the traffic times. It's crowded, it's busy, you can't see the stars, and there's smog. So in other words, I grew up in the desert, but not in the wilderness. We had to choose to go to the wilderness. We vacationed to the Arizona mountains to visit my grandparents after they retired. Now my grandparents, I don't know if grandparents still have these, probably not anymore, but my grandparents had a stockpile of old Reader's Digests. <laughs> my favorite feature in these, other than the jokes, was uh, the drama in real life. Anybody read those? It's these stories of real stories of people who end up in some horrible, life-threatening situation, like falling into a river or getting attacked by a bear, and they have to figure out how to survive. These people found themselves in a wilderness not of their choosing. Many of us enjoy camping in the wilderness, but it's another thing to have wilderness thrust upon you. On this first Sunday of Lent, we choose to enter the wilderness with Jesus for 40 days. And the wilderness can feel scary. That's how Mark's readers would have felt about it. There were no tents or sleeping bags in this wilderness. No maps. I'm aware that a couple people here were just out camping on safari in Rwanda. None of that stuff. There were no interstates, but there were lots of dangerous animals like hyenas and lions and leopards. Oh my. The wilderness was haunted by demons. The wilderness is where scapegoats were sent to bear away the people's shame. Who would choose the wilderness if they had another option? And yet Mark's readers, we think, found themselves in a wilderness not of their choosing. We think they were experiencing persecution and suffering and rejection by people they cared about because they chose to follow Jesus. And as someone reminded me right before the service today, in this kind of wilderness, they don't know how it will end. They don't know whether it will end in victory or death. They were walking through what we might call a drama in real life. For them and for all who find ourselves in a wilderness not of our choosing, Mark's brief account of Jesus' wilderness experience offers some profound encouragement, even in the midst of the drama. So I'd like to share three observations from Mark this morning that can encourage us, give us courage in the drama of the wilderness. First, my first observation is that Jesus ends up in the wilderness, not because of disobedience, but through obedience. Mark writes that right after Jesus was baptized and indwelt by the Holy Spirit, that spirit sent him out into the wilderness. Sent out could also be translated cast out. 
It's the same sort of language used when Adam and Eve are cast out of the garden because of their sin. But here, the Spirit is casting out Jesus, not because Jesus has done something wrong, but because it's the will of the Father. And Jesus enters the wilderness following the Spirit. It's almost like the text wants us to think of Jesus entering into the world as it was after Eden. There's these wild places versus a cultivated garden. There's wild animals that are threatening rather than docile. This is a picture of Jesus entering into a world made dangerous by sin. And that's what Jesus came to do. This is part of his obedience to the Father. He is here for a redo. Adam and Eve failed. Israel does too. Jesus enters the scene as the Lord's chosen champion. Jesus is in the wilderness, not out of disobedience, but out of obedience to the Father's will. Now, I'm sure it didn't always feel that way to him. If you've ever gone through something or experienced something that you with others discerned was a spiritual attack, the voice of the accuser whispering in your ear, you know that it's intensely painful, torturous even. Think about how scripture describes people who are demon-possessed or tormented by something gripping them. Now, Jesus is not demon-possessed, but imagine him hearing those whispers in his ears all alone in the silence of the wilderness. Imagine enduring that kind of mental-emotional battle, spiritual battle, on top of physical stresses like fasting for 40 days. Now imagine your Mark's readers and their suffering hearing the whispers of the accuser. Why are you putting yourselves through this? If you were on the right path, you wouldn't be suffering like this. Surely you've done something wrong to be experiencing this kind of pain. The gods must be punishing you. You should turn back. Well, Mark encourages his readers. Sometimes followers of Jesus will suffer because we've been obedient. Deacon Ethan last week mentioned uh, the contrast between a theology of glory and a theology of the cross, which simply means that in the lives of Christians, success is not seen in things like health, wealth, large numbers of followers, and a life of ease. That's not the mark of success. Faithful Christians will suffer for righteousness because we follow a suffering Savior. This is a hard word. This is the drama of the wilderness. Second observation. Jesus is not lost or forsaken in the wilderness because he knows he is God's beloved son. Beloved son. It's easy to get lost without a map or a compass, even when you're not in the wilderness. I hate it when my phone... I've plugged in my map and that it loses signal for some reason. What do I do? My family comes out here from Southern California and comment about how confused they get trying to drive around here because there are no mountains to orient them to. It's just flat. Where am I? We need something to orient us in the wilderness. When Jesus enters the wilderness, the question that should be on everyone's mind is, will he lose his way? We take for granted that we know the ending of this story. But if you've read scripture up to this point, you know Israel was tested in the wilderness for 40 years and never got it right. Over and over and over. Will Jesus fail too? Will he, like Israel, 
look for a quick food fix rather than trust the Father to provide manna in the wilderness? Will he question the Father's words? You are my son, the beloved one, in whom I am well pleased. These words of the Father that Mark records have rich overtones. It reminds me of what I know of modern recordings, where there's almost always an overlay of different tracks, right? They don't always have a big orchestra recording the whole thing at once. They record this part, and then they record this part, and this part, and maybe the singer does a vocal harmony too, and then they put them over each other to create the song. Sometimes you can pick out the different tracks that they're recording. Well, scripture overlays tracks as well, especially in the New Testament. So when we hear these words, you are my son, the beloved, in whom I am well pleased, we can pick out at least three tracks from scripture that Mark is bringing together in this one song. The first track we might think of is from Psalm 2, in verses that are about the Messiah. I will proclaim the Lord's decree. He said to me, you are my son, today I've become your father. Ask me and I will make the nations your inheritance. Track two from Isaiah 42, verses about what we now call the suffering servant. Here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him and he will bring justice to the nations. And then track three from Genesis 22, when God says to Abraham, take your son, your only son, whom you love, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on the mountain I will show you. So in this one little verse, we have God's son who will reign over all nations. God's servant filled with the spirit, chosen, delighted in, bringing justice. God's beloved son who will be sacrificed as a burnt offering. All of this is part of the master track in Mark. And this is the compass the Father gives Jesus to carry with him into the wilderness. This is the identity that keeps him grounded, that orients him. And this is the very identity that the accuser attacks. What are the first words that the other gospel writers tell us that the accuser, the Satan, says to Jesus? Do you remember? If you are the Son of God... Feed yourself, if you are the Son of God. Because God's beloved shouldn't hunger. God's beloved shouldn't experience suffering and deprivation. Surely God wouldn't want you to deprive yourself of the fruit from that tree. Oh, wait, wrong story. Same accuser. When we suffer or we feel like we're lost in a wilderness, we too sometimes hear the words of the accuser. If God really loved you, he wouldn't have let this happen to you. If God really loved you, he'd have protected you. If God was really good, if you were really his beloved, he'd have prevented this. He'd be answering your prayers. He'd be feeding you, not expecting you to be deprived. Go ahead, take it. We, too, are tempted to doubt our own belovedness in the wilderness. This, too, is the drama of the wilderness. My third observation is that Jesus' time in the wilderness is actually part of the good news of the kingdom of God. 
All three synoptic gospels portray Jesus in the wilderness before he enters his public ministry. Mark gives us a very succinct gospel message, doesn't he? Jesus comes out preaching, the time has come. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. The wilderness is actually part of the good news. Because in the wilderness, we know from other writers of the gospels, Jesus triumphed. He triumphed. Where Adam and Eve and Israel failed, Jesus emerges as champion. He faces severe temptation without sin. He does not lose his way. He and his person through the wilderness is already at work reversing the curse of sin and death. Jesus hears the accuser and unmasks the lies. This is good news. This is the happy ending of this section of the drama in real life. And this is where our experience of the wilderness diverges from that of Jesus. Unlike Jesus, we often fail when we're tempted, even still. We often do not triumph in the wilderness. We feed our hungers. We turn from our belovedness and that of others. We use the ends to justify the means, and that's exactly what God knows the wilderness will reveal in us. This story is not a, here, do these things and you'll triumph like Jesus. It's, Jesus is victorious. For Jesus, the wilderness was to be a place of drama and triumph. And for us, the wilderness is often a place it's meant to be a place in which we learn humility and dependence and humility again. Where we learn to see ourselves more clearly. Where we learn to distinguish the voice of the spirit from the voice of the accuser, sometimes by trial and error. For Jesus, the wilderness is a place of triumph, and for us, it's often a place in which we fail. But our drama does not end there. Otherwise, we would despair. The author of Hebrews writes, We do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses. We have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Jesus is victorious. Then, Let us approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. It's not you'll be victorious, it's that you will receive mercy and find grace in your time of need. Jesus is the victor, not me. I need mercy and grace. I need forgiveness. Fancy that. I need forgiveness for the many ways I've failed myself and others. I need forgiveness for the wrongs done and the wrongs left undone. I need the forgiveness that flows from our great high priest who alone triumphed over the accuser, over temptation, over sin and death. We leave the wilderness not victorious, but forgiven. And that's really good news. Imagine again how Mark's first readers might have felt. Suffering, frail, helpless, doubting. Mark reassures them and us that when we feel lost in the wilderness, we might actually be in the right place. 
the place the Spirit brought us, the space, the place in which we can learn our belovedness, in which we learn humility and receive forgiveness, in which we learn that Jesus is victorious and we are in him. To them and to us, Mark says, you are not forsaken in the wilderness. God is with you. Repent and believe the good news. Great, Mark. How do we do that? Every year when my family took the familiar path across the desert wilderness towards Arizona, there were landmarks that we knew to look for. There was Hadley's Date Farm. There was the In-N-Out Burger in Indio. There were the big dinosaurs. And then there were the wind farms. There's a lot of wind in the wilderness. There's fewer things to block the power of the wind whooshing around. And so, people have learned you can put these enormous fan things out there to catch the wind in the wilderness. Lenten disciplines are sort of like those big fans. They're practices designed to help us catch the wind in the wilderness, the wind of the Spirit, who is always blowing, always blowing. So for our community in this season of our life together, there's three practices that come to mind for me. There might be others for you. Three practices that I think might encourage us and help us catch the wind in the wilderness. The first practice is solitude and silence. It's not very glamorous, but it's the foundation of so many other practices. It's a way of entering the wilderness, of seeing what comes up in us. When I step out and there's no one else around and no media and no email and no kids, what is real about me in the midst of all that? What stars can I only see in the wilderness? Now, I'm aware that, uh, especially for parents, solitude and silence is in short supply. I'm learning to just do like 10 minutes, 10 minutes, or set aside a day. Do what you can. It doesn't have to be full-blown. Start somewhere. Slow down and listen to the wind of the Spirit. And I'll just say, I know that this can be scary. I was remembering in seminary, I think my, like, one of my counseling professors, our assignment was to just go sit alone for two hours. And I was terrified. I'd never done that in my whole life. Now I could do that. You might feel scared of that. It's okay. It's okay. It's okay to be scared. Jesus will meet you there. Do what you can to enter into solitude and silence, to listen to the wind of the Spirit. Another practice I recommend for us is the practice of Sabbath. You might have seen that we've put together a, a guide to Sabbath for this season. Now, by Sabbath, I simply mean a day on which we choose not to work. We rest, we delight, we spend time with others. We allow God to speak to us of our own belovedness. Again, I know the temptation of working seven days a week. That's why it's a practice, a discipline. So check out the guide, see what you think. And I just want to say to our students in particular, I know how impossible it might feel to try to not work on one day. I don't know what to say to you about that other than try it. 
Maybe for this season, try it. Rest in the Lord. And the third practice I recommend to us is confession, which is not a popular one for us Protestants. It's not something we've talked a ton about at Redeemer, although we have offered it. Cranmer was a fan. Luther, too. Now, why confession? I am sensing that as a community, for me too, we are needing to experience the grace of God's forgiveness in particular in this season. We know about forgiveness. We do. Do we experience it? Do we experience, yes, Lord, this is who I am and I'm forgiven? Now, what might that look like? And by confession, you know, there's good to confess alone to the Lord. I'm talking about confessing to someone, which is, is scarier, right? We have uh, liturgy around this, confessing to a priest, to me, or reaching out to someone like the Richardsons. I'm glad to connect you with them. I'm hoping to do this with them. Um, I know someone in the congregation who is a fan of this who would tell you about it. Is it okay if I, yeah, Deb. Deb has practiced confession and found it really, she's a confession evangelist. <laughs> you can talk to her what that's like. The reason it's on my heart for this year is I know how much I'm in touch right now with my failures, and I'm more in touch with my failures than my forgiveness. Maybe you are too. I need to hear Someone else say the words, you are forgiven. God forgives you. And to feel the release of that. So that's what I'm offering for us as well to think about in this season. Let's pray together. <laughs> I realize this is not a sentence. This is an instruction to me to pray. I'd like to pray for us. Please pray with me. Holy Spirit, you are at work in the world. You are blowing through our midst like a gentle breeze, sometimes a really strong gale. Last night, my daughter couldn't sleep because the wind was so loud. I pray that in this season, we would hear you blowing through our midst. We would sense you blowing through our midst, that you'd show us what is, in, what is our responsibility to do to catch the wind of the Spirit here and now. Lead us, Lord, into Lent. Lead us into times of solitude and silence where you meet us and speak to us. Lead us into times of Sabbath when we know that you delight in us. Lead us into times of confession when we hear your forgiveness for us. We pray, O oh Lord, for all these things that your will would be done in and through us for your glory and our good. And in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, I pray. Amen.